Good Fight. That's the name of our summer Real Men Bible study. We'll be going verse by verse through 1 Timothy. Uh, you and me up here in the mountains, real informal, casual, 12 weeks looking at an older man named Paul, building up and uh, investing in a younger man named Timothy, teaching him how to be a man of God and fight a good fight. And I'll tell you, in a day when the uh, world has lost its mind and everything's going to hell, uh, a few men need to learn how to fight. I'll see you guys online this summer as we study 1 Timothy, the good fight. All right, guys, welcome back to our Real Men's Summer Bible Study in 1 Timothy. A uh, series is called Good Fight. If you want to be a good man, uh, God's man, you got to learn to fight everyone and everything that's against the Word of God. And uh, today we're dealing with command number four. And again, the situation is... Uh, the storyline of 1 Timothy, it's a letter written by Paul, who's like a spiritual father, writing to Timothy, who's like a spiritual son, kind of building him up, coaching him up uh, so that he can be a man of God and then he can lead others. And that's always the goal. The goal is not just that you would be built up as a man of God, but that you would be built up as a man of God who was leading active at home, at work, wherever God has given you uh, influence and uh, opportunity. And uh, today, uh, Paul's gonna tell Timothy how to pray and some certain people and things to be praying for. And when it comes to prayer, just to kind of introduce our subject, most dudes aren't great at prayer. A couple of reasons. Number one, you just know statistically, women are more verbal than men. Uh, they, they, they get together and they do this crazy thing where one talks, the other listens, and then they uh, trade places. And as men, it's like, well, that's just crazy. Most men build our relationships and our friendships shoulder to shoulder. So the guys you feel closest with, it's like we served in the military, we worked together, we played on a sports team. Um, literally, when dudes get together, we'll go watch a game, we'll go watch a cage fight. You know, we'll go hunt, sit in the, you know, blind and be looking for, you know, whatever we're supposed to scope in and shoot. But for men, most relationships are built shoulder to shoulder. Women do more face to face. They look in the eye, they read the body language and the facial expressions, they talk and they listen. And so men tend not to be as verbal and we tend not to be as emotional. Some of you may be an exception but that's a general rule. Prayer is something that women tend to pick up, it seems like, a little more naturally and easily than men uh, because it's more verbal, more conversational, more relational, more emotional, more personal. The breakthrough for men when it comes to prayer is Jesus, and Jesus taught us to pray our Father. And so the key is um, when you're learning to pray, it's like a son learning to talk to a father. And so, like my, uh, my sons, for example, when they were little, and pretty soon I'll have two grandsons, so we'll start the process over again. The little boys are alive and literally kicking and getting ready to enter the world, can't wait to meet them. But when my boys were little, I would talk to them and they had no idea what I was saying. And they would talk to me and I had no idea what they were saying. We didn't communicate but we kept working on it. And so I would keep talking to my boys, they keep talking to me. Now as their dad, um, I was able to kind of understand or interpret what they were trying to tell me 
earlier than they could interpret and understand what I was trying to tell them because I'm the father. So I'm reading the body language and the tone of voice. And, you know, is this a kid who's, you know, gaseous or tired or upset or, you know, you start to read your kid's communication. Well, it's like that when you get born, you don't know how to listen or how to speak. When you get born again, it starts all over again. You're like, I don't know how to talk to God. Well, that's called prayer. It's a brand new language that you're learning. It's a foreign language you've never known before. And then also listening, okay, God, what are you saying? And then interpreting what your father is saying. And so just like a father and a son, and if you've been a father and you love your son, you know that you're committed to this process and it's gonna take a while and be a little clunky, but you wanna have a good relationship. And so the point of prayer is getting to know your father and speaking to him and listening to him for the building of your relationship. And one of the reasons that a lot of dudes struggle with prayer is they're like, why should I pray to God? Am I gonna tell him something he doesn't know? No, you're not gonna, prayer is not to tell God something he doesn't know. It's for you to process what you're thinking or feeling or wanting or fearing with your father, just like a son talking to his dad. Hey dad, let me run by you. Here's what I'm thinking, what I'm going through, what I'm working on. By you verbal processing with your father, you're inviting him in. And it's also allowing the Holy Spirit to open your insight into your own self. And in addition, the point of prayer is not to change God. Like I'm going to tell God what to do and make him do something. The point of prayer is for you to invite God to change you. And so when I talk with my sons, I listen, I try to listen more than I speak and ask a lot of questions and, and, and then I'll speak to them. And uh, the goal is um, that by our conversation, I would coach them, I would mentor them, I would encourage them, I would help them, I would understand them as their father. So prayer isn't about telling God something he doesn't know, but inviting God in to help you process what you're thinking or feeling. In addition, prayer is not making God do something and it's not changing God, it's God using prayer to change you to do his will. So that's basically prayer. And if you're not good at it, just keep practicing and trying. And because God is your dad, he's your father, um, we talked about that in an earlier episode, you can talk to him informally, conversationally, and respectfully. I don't like to just sit down and pray. I will kneel before I preach, and when I'm asking God for wisdom or repenting of sin as a sign of surrender and submission, I do like to raise my hands and, and pray as worship in church, and singing is where men pray corporately. It's where we all sing, pray the same words. And the Bible is going to talk about today, God wants holy men to lift up holy hands in prayer. Part of what we do is we do this in prayer, but also in worship, which is corporate prayer uh, with the church family. Um, I like to hike. In fact, I'm in the woods. And as soon as we're done, I'm going to go for my prayer hike. I like to go for long hikes and I just talk to God and I listen. But I'm not a guy who can sit there all day. I need to be moving and active. I like to talk to God while I'm driving, take the top off the Bronco, turn the radio off and just verbal process. Um, there are different ways to pray. And the goal is just to get started. Now, what's concerning is um, there was a report that just came out. The Public Religion Research Institute, PR. R.I., they do this study um, every so often, 
and only 16% of Americans have God as the first priority in their life. 16% means 84% of people, God is either not in their life or not a priority. That's the record low in American history. And so what that tells you is literally most people are living godless, like they're living life um, minus God. Um, for us as men, our relationship with God, our relationship with our wife, our relationship with each of our kids, and then our grandkids or work, or you know, those are our priorities. And if God isn't your first priority, I'm just telling you, you're going to screw up your whole life. And if you're not praying to God, you're not going to be hearing from God, making wise decisions, and you're not going to be emotionally processing. You can't be a healthy person. You cannot be a healthy person, a good leader, making good decisions without praying. Now, the good news is um, the Springdale, excuse me, Springtide Research Center just came out with another study that's actually encouraging. Um, get this right. Gen Z adults ages 18 to 25 are more spiritual and religiously open to God than other generations have been. So we're seeing a turn. And what Gen Z young adults 18 to 25 are seeing is what we're being told isn't working. Uh, the wokeism, the progressivism, the gender dysphoria and confusion, the, the genitalia mutilation of kids, the fatherlessness in homes, the epidemic of national debt, the legalization of drugs, the addiction to pornography and video games, uh, the eating of nothing but junk food, the getting triggered on social media, uh, the putting hope and faith in a government that never delivers what they promise isn't working. So a whole generation is perhaps coming to this wonderfully rich conclusion, and that is life without God doesn't work. Maybe we should try God. So that's super encouraging and super hopeful. And if you're one of those young guys, thanks for tuning in and let me be a little bit like a spiritual father to you. And if you want to know more about prayer, go to realfaith.com. There's a whole series there called Pray Like Jesus. I co-authored a book with my daughter and we taught a sermon series together. And uh, you can find the ebook there for free in the store and all the sermons, or you can order a copy for a gift to the ministry. Well, Paul is talking about prayer. And first he says, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15, that's where we're at. So we've established our subject, prayer, and God first in your life. And now we're going to talk about prayer in particular. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, then he said to start with, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Um, there's different words there for prayer. Uh, supplication, that's making a request. Hey, God, I need something or they need something. Uh, prayers, these can be general requests or needs. Intercession, somebody's hurting or struggling or sick or ill. So you're going to intercede and pray on their behalf, come between them and the Lord. And thanksgiving. And thanksgiving or what we always called in our family, thankful prayers. What are you thankful for? And I always like to start my prayer time, and I'll do this in my hike shortly, with thankful prayers. God, here's thank you for this. Thank, thank you for my wife, Grace. Thank you for each of my kids. Thank you for the people who let me, you know, help them learn God's word. Thank you that I'm 52 and healthy and love my life. And thank you for my friends. And thank you for all of your blessing and provision. And as I just start thinking of things to be thankful for, oftentimes on my hikes, and I try to do a, a long prayer hike in the woods every week, 
I find that sometimes I will make the whole prayer hike and it'll only be Thanksgiving. I have actually taken, I don't know, seven, 10 mile hike up here in the mountains at various points. And the whole time I started with thankful prayers and next thing you know, the whole thing was thankful prayers. I, there was so much to be thankful for. And there was a pastor some years ago, um, this is a verbal process, kind of Bible study, you and me telling you stuff. I'd tell you if we were hanging out, you know, having a cup of coffee or whiskey or if you're Baptist, grape juice, um, whatever your thing is. Um, he said that he used to think that life was good seasons and bad seasons. So you just get through the bad seasons to get to the good seasons. And then he realized life is like train tracks. There's good and bad in every season. And the thankful prayers and um, the supplication prayers, they're different. The supplication prayers are, here's where it's not working and God, I need help. And thankful prayers are, God, here's where it is working. Thank you very much. And so you need to pray both because there's always things that are working and things that are not working. Um, and, and what he's talking about here is almost similar to another line in the New Testament where it says to pray without ceasing. And, um, and that means that prayer for your soul is like breathing for your lungs. As you mature in your Christian faith, at the beginning, you may need to be self-conscious about increasing your prayer life, but over time it becomes habitual like breathing. Um, I don't think about my breathing. You probably don't either. You're just uh, in a healthy rhythm and state where your body just breathes in and breathes out. Well, prayer is talking to God and listening to God. It's like the soul's way of breathing. And the more you do it, the more it just becomes an unconscious habit in life. It's just, you're always talking to the Lord. And then he says, pray for politicians. And I'll tell you, this one's hard because our politicians are horrible. But it says to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it uh, is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. He says, okay, pray for everybody and pray for politicians. Isn't it interesting that he says that? They lived un under the Roman government where the emperor was worshiped as a God and persecuted Christians and murdered Bible teachers. And most of the politicians in the Bible are just corrupt to their core, demonic, evil, antichrist. As Christians, our hope is not in an election, but in a kingdom. And it's not in a king or a president, but it's in uh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Government is a functional necessity in a fallen world to restrain evil. It's necessary, but it is certainly not perfect. And because government is run by sinners, they weaponize the government to do sinful things. That being said, we do need government. It's better than complete and total anarchy. Ask anyone in Portland right now. Um, but nonetheless, um, by praying for politicians and leaders, um, number one, God does and can hear and answer prayer. So, so maybe if you pray for politicians, maybe you get a good one or God saves one or one starts to make better decisions than they would have otherwise made. Number two, as we pray for politicians, it guards our heart against just sort of jaded bitterness and anger. And right now, a lot of what's driving the political dialogue and polarization in our country is uh, everybody's just angry and frustrated and uh, triggered. Uh, we, and we call it Twittered. That's where all the, 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 the triggered people are the Twittered people. They just go on and just attack each other. And 
rather than attacking people, maybe interceding for leaders is a better use of your time and energy. And I'm not saying we should never speak out against politics or government or unjust laws, but at some point when you're so frustrated by the state of the nation and you're so frustrated by the condition of the leaders that you gotta pray so that you can be a healthy person, not just um, triggered, uh, you know, become some jaded, vengeful, conspiracy theorist, you know, anti-authoritarian rioter, but that you can live, he says, a quiet, gentle, peaceable life, that you can find a way to say, this world is going to hell, but I'm not letting hell come to my house. I may need to go through a little hell on my way to heaven, um, but I want to bring heaven into my life as soon as possible. And it's trying to carve out like, what is your life? What is your family? What is your routine? What does it look like? And part of it is maybe pray for politicians and then leave them in God's hands. Shut your phone off, shut your TV off, shut the news off. Just work with your hands, love your spouse, love your kids, stay busy, lead your life, serve your God. And just know that until Jesus comes back, it's gonna be just a mess. He also says, pray for lost people. He says, uh, that God who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, God's heart is that people would get saved and confess Jesus as Lord and repent of sin and go from spiritual death to life. By praying for lost people, it'll number one, guard your heart. Who in your life is, they're not a Christian and they're kind of frustrating you or driving you nuts or disappointing you. You see them making one bad decision after another, self-destructing, acting in foolish ways, making painful life choices. And you're like, oh gosh, I wish they would just meet Jesus, get the Holy Spirit, start reading their Bible, go to church and pull their life together. Well, pray for them so that you don't get a hard heart or bitterness toward them. And that if and when the opportunity comes, you'll actually be in a good place to talk to them about Jesus. Um, number two, sometimes God does his best work when we don't say anything, we just pray, and then the Holy Spirit goes and works on someone. And by praying for lost people, it's a pre-evangelism method. Uh, sometimes when you pray for somebody and they know it and God answers it, it's the beginning of them getting saved because they're seeing that God is real. All right, guys, Pastor Mark here letting you know about the latest book, New Days, Old Demons. It's a prophetic word against pathetic wokeness. Uh, you guys understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, hopefully it is on sale. If not, it's coming out very, very soon. Would appreciate your prayers as we punch a lot of people and things in the mouth. And if it's a help, get a copy. And uh, this happened in my life. I'll never forget, I was a little boy and I, I can't remember if it was a Little League game or a, there's a little Birian Honda hat right there. That actually was my Little League team. And I uh, played for Birian Honda. And I think it was when I was playing for Beery and Honda, uh, I was probably around 10 or 11 years of age and I got injured and I was sitting on the bench and one of the guy's moms, um, I still remember him and her, all these people go through your life, somebody stops and prays and they're noteworthy. And she came over and she's like, hey, do you mind if I pray for you and your injury? I was like, no, no I mean, no, you know, hadn't asked, people hadn't really asked me if they could pray for me. I said, sure, and she prayed for me. And I remember at that moment thinking, hmm, that was different, that was interesting. And I started thinking, huh, I wonder, I didn't know you could pray at a little league field. I didn't know you could pray if you weren't like a priest or a pastor. I didn't know that you could pray for a stranger. I, I didn't know. 
But her praying, it opened up this, maybe there is a God and maybe we can talk to him and maybe he listens to us. And, and that was the beginning of an opening and an awakening of a curiosity about God in my life, just praying. And sometimes you don't know what to say or do. You're just like, can I pray for you? And let me say this too. Some of you men, you're getting activated and I'm proud of you. And you're like, I want to lead my family and be the head of my household and, you know, be the spiritual leader for my wife and kids. How do I get started? Just get started by praying for them and praying over them. Just like your wife is like having a bad day. Honey, can I pray for you? Just the Bible talks about the laying on of hands. Just hold her, hug her, kiss her, tell her you love her, pray for her. Your kids, pray over them. I always would kiss my kids on the head and I'd put my hands on them and I'd kiss them on the top of the head, put my hands on them and I'd pray over them. And the way to be the spiritual head is not necessarily that you would win the Jeopardy episode knowing all of the Old Testament concepts, but that you're the loving, present, emotional, you know, leader of prayer in your family. In addition, uh, he says, importantly, how we pray as Christians is different. Uh, we pray through Jesus Christ. And so the Trinity is one God, three persons, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, kind of like a family. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is in you, and then you pray by the power of the Spirit, through Jesus, because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, sin is forgiven, heaven, access to the Father is made available. So then the prayer goes from the Spirit, through the Son, who is the mediator, to the Father. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, and then we're also taught to pray in Jesus' name. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying through Jesus. He's the one that takes our prayers to the Father. And he says, for there is one God, so there's only one God. There's a lot of demons who pretend to be gods. They have spiritual power, they will do miracles, they will raise up prophets and leaders, and it's all counterfeit because everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. But there's only one true God, uh, and there is one mediator between God and men. If you want to know God, if you want to go to heaven, if you want eternal life, there's only one way. And, um, and everybody who is saved is saved in the same way, through Jesus Christ. That's it. We're all about Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all, uh, which is the testimony uh, given at the proper time. And what he's saying is this. Jesus Christ is God who came down and became a man. We don't go up to God. God comes down to us. Human beings don't become divine beings. God, the divine being, became a human being. This is the incarnation. God comes in flesh or carne. Um, this is what we celebrate every Christmas. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus came down to die and rise, forgive our sins. Then Jesus ascended into heaven. And right now he intercedes for us and he mediates between us and the Father. And so the point is simply this, apart from Jesus, we don't have a relationship with God. He's not our Father. Jesus says that our Father is the devil. And um, God isn't talking to us and listening to us in the same way he would his children, his sons, and his daughters. But if you belong to Jesus, the good news is uh, he's always mediating and interceding. Heaven is always open and your prayers are always heard. And then he talks about praying for men and women. 
and he's talking to a local church. Uh, the men piece is a little controversial. The women, super controversial. Every time you hit this part of 1 Timothy 2, it's like you took a, hat, a, a hose rather and put it on a cat or a bee's nest. It's, it's quite a reaction. But here's what he says to the men. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth and I'm not lying. The Bible always tells the truth. A leader of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place, the men. So guys, this is for us. You'll notice that the Bible says that there are men and women, binary gender categories, that God made us male and female, that marriage is for a man and a woman, and we are to raise sons and daughters, not just children on a non-binary spectrum. The Bible is very clear about all of these things. So he's going to talk to the men and then the women because they're different. They're equal, but they're different. And men and women tend to have different struggles and temptations. He says, I desire that in every place, uh, every church, every place that God's people are present, men should pray. So number one, if men aren't praying, something is wrong. And in any church, usually it is way more women than men who are active and the women than men who are praying and the women than men who are raising their hands in worship. And uh, what Paul is saying is, men, you need to lead spiritually and that's by praying and worshiping. And rather than laying your hands on your girlfriend or angrily laying your hands on your wife and kids, you need to raise your hands in surrender to your father so that you can become a son who is like his son, Jesus Christ. I desire that in every place men should pray. So men, are you praying? And prayer is not something that you have to do. It's something that you get to do. If you have a father who adopts you and knows you and loves you, and he wants to meet with you and talk to you and listen to you, that's not something you have to do. That's something you get to do. I've got uh, three sons, a son-in-law and two grandsons on the way. Man, if they want to talk to me, I want to listen. If they want to invite me in, I want to be part of their life. Man, I want the relationship. And prayer is not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do because we have a father who cares about us. Men should pray lifting holy hands. Sometimes it's good when you pray to do the same thing that a convicted criminal does or a surrendering soldier. And that is, God, I'm not here to fight. Uh, I'm here to, uh, to worship. That's why I'm here. And, um, and when any man raises his hands, what he's saying is, I'm dependent. And most men don't like to be weak. We like to be strong. We don't like to be dependent. We like to be independent. But think about it when your son was little. Your son would hold their hands up and want you to pick them up. Uh, when your son was little and they would raise their hands so they could hold your hand uh, so you could lead and guide them on a walk. Um, think about the times that, uh, that your son raised his hands and then set them on your face you know, maybe rubbing your beard. Um, your father has a father's heart. And when you, even though you're an adult grown male son, raise your hands, you're acting as a good son and you're uh, inviting in a perfect father. And it's really important for me. I like to raise my hands in worship. I like to raise my hands in prayer. I'm, I'm a full blown charismatic. One of my favorite things to do in worship is hold my wife's hand and raise my other hand in worship. And we worship and sing together, which is a corporate way of praying. These are simple things, men, that most men just don't do. 
Um, pray over your family, pray over your meals, pray over your kids' bedtime, pray over your wife, sing in church, raise your hands, be emotional and passionate. And if it's odd to you, it's because you're not a very emotional or relational man. But once you start to get emotional and relational with God, you'll get more emotional and relational with your wife, your kids, and others. And also, he says, to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men like to argue. Men like to have conflict. Men like to fight. In church, men like to fight for power. They like to argue over theology. They, they want to be in control. And what he says is, rather than men arguing and fighting, they should be worshiping and praying. That way the men can all have the mind and the heart of God, so then they can be unified as sons in obedience. And then he has a prayer for women. And I hope there are no women watching this because they're about to get triggered. I'll deal with it very quickly uh, because uh, this is the Real Men podcast and this is just an aside for the women. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what, a proper, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So first he says, Women, I have some things for you. Get some clothes. Stop having your underwear be your outerwear. True or false, we live in a day when like, it, it's like almost naked. And uh, a lot of women will be like, you're a man, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you what another dude named Paul says, and that is go buy a sweatshirt. Um, a sports bra is not a shirt. Um, your uh, neckline and your hemline should not meet. Uh, right, just some basic issues that in the culture, women want to be known primarily for the external and God's encouraging his daughters to be more concerned about the internal. He talks about good works. We live in a day of social media where women are encouraged to just sexualize themselves and to present themselves for public observation. And as a result, we have a very superficial, pornified, shallow culture. And now that I'm a father, this bothers me more than ever. I got two daughters and I've got a daughter-in-law and a, my son's getting married, I'll have another daughter-in-law. It's like, you know, sensuality, sexuality is great for marriage, but not for Instagram. It's great if a husband and a wife flirt with one another, seduce one another, um, enjoy one another, but that's private, that's not public. Um, that's for your bedroom, that's not for Costco. And so God wants the marriage to be safeguarded and protected. And part of that is that the women who don't know God present themselves in a way that God's women simply shouldn't. And I won't get into all the legalisms that can come around this and hemlines and haircuts and just the, it's, you know, God sees the inward man looks at the outward. It's the letter versus the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is, is this modesty um, and honoring marriage and honoring God or is this seduction and sensuality like Jezebel just wanting lots of attention and lots of lust and, and lots of inappropriate uh, gawking? That's not healthy and it's not good. And what we have is we have like Facebook, but we don't have character book because what we want to see is your face, but we don't care about your soul. I'm just telling you this, your, your face and your body 
are going to be defeated by gravity. Gravity is undefeated. Um, at some point, you don't look the same and it's not getting any better. Um, and so the point is that the soul is the deepest part of you. It's the part of you that will live beyond the body. And it's not that the body doesn't matter, it does. But if you're worried about the body, you should be particularly worried about the soul because God sees the soul and it's the soul that will endure forever. So basic summary is, and this is a pivot for if you've got daughters, you need to lovingly, and if you have a wife, hopefully she's aligned with you. Maybe you do have a wife or a girlfriend. You're like, I love you, you're beautiful, but when we're in public, a little modesty, I would appreciate it because I want to see you as my wife sexually, but I don't want everybody else looking at you that way. And some men, they're so porn-headed, it doesn't matter what a woman wears, they're, they've just got a perverted mind. It's, so it's not the woman's fault, I'm not saying that. But if it's your daughter too, it's like, honey, don't go out half naked, you're gonna get the wrong kind of guys who aren't looking for a wife. Uh, they're, 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 they're looking for you know temptation and sin and they're just wanting you to become their porn fantasy and I, I would rather have you be my daughter. And then he gives a little more exhortation. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. And then he goes all the way back to creation. And some people will say, well, this is a cultural argument, but times have changed. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, pre-culture, before sin fall in the curse. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love with holiness and self-control. In context, let me just hit this quickly. He's writing to Timothy, who's ministering in a city called Ephesus. If you go to Acts 19, Paul showed up there, and the centerpiece of demonic worship, the banking system, and the economy, as well as the culture and sexuality in Ephesus, was uh, the cult of Artemis, which was an ancient female demon goddess. And so this was a very feministic, very sexualized, very much like uh, Jezebel. I'm in a series as well in Elijah on Jezebel, very Jezebelian. Sensuality and spirituality put together um, with a massive temple, gigantic income, prostitution, um, gender confusion, total rebellion, hardcore feminism. So that's the city that Paul goes into. There's a riot over him preaching the gospel. He runs for his life. He sends Timothy back into the fight. That's why he gets this letter of 1 Timothy. So the context is, um, this is a very nasty, vile, naughty group of people. And he says, first and foremost, that women should learn. That in the first century would have been controversial, not so much today. Wherever Christianity is spread, and I've got a, a free book, uh, Christians Might Be Crazy, the ebook is at realfaith.com in the store. And I talk about women's rights and women's rights have only gone where Christianity has flourished because it says that men and women are equal, made the image and likeness of God. Jesus honored women, including his own mother throughout the course of his ministry, including women who were first to find the empty tomb and the resurrected um, you know, victory of Jesus. So. All that to say, go to a hardcore Islamic country and see that it is very, very different than wherever the gospel is spread. Um, and it says here that a woman should learn. And in some cultures, particularly the ancient culture, oftentimes in conservative religious cultures, old and new, the men are educated, not the women. 
and the men are theological and biblical, not the women. And what he's saying here, the women should learn. We want all the women to be biblical, theological, like John and Charles Wesley's mom, who was a brilliant Bible gal and taught incredible sons who God used to change the world and bring us modern day um, Protestant um, charismatic and Pentecostal movements as a result of their work. It says that a woman should be quiet. And the word there is not total silence. It's the same word used of men just previously in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And what it's saying is don't be argumentative. And this applies to men and women, but here he's making a particular application to women, probably because in that church the women were arguing and debating and interrupting. He's like, hey, just let the pastor finish the sermon, and maybe then we unpack the details. Uh, but don't make it feel like a Jerry Springer episode, you know, or, or some crazy reality television show. Um, the quietness there is a teachable spirit. It's not total silence. Um, God wants women to be strong, um, but if they're married, not independent. And so he says, uh, quiet, gentle spirit, teachable spirit, those concepts would say that a wife is not um, weak, she's strong, but she's not independent. She's dependent on God and connected to her husband. My wife, very strong. My two daughters, very strong. Growing up in my house, you're going to learn to argue, study the Bible, and have very deep opinions. Those are the girls in my life, and I love them with all my heart. But Grace and I don't live independent. We're dependent on God connected to each other. My married daughter is not independent. She's connected to her husband. They're dependent on God. That's really the heart of what is going on here. In addition, um, it says that she is not allowed to teach or to exercise authority. Big debate. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of it. I'll just, there's two camps, egalitarian, complementarian. You're probably familiar with this. If you're not, these are the words to Google. And then watch your browser just sort of start to smoke with all the controversy. Egalitarian, men and women are equal not only in um, value, but in role. So any role that a man can have, a woman can have. That's egalitarian. Complementarian, men and women are equal in value, but they have different roles. So in the home, the husband is called the head. The wife is never called the head of the household. Um, they are equal. This is why the Bible says for children to honor and obey your mother and father. And so the complementarian position is that men and women are equal in value or worth, both bearing the image and likes of God, and that the man and the woman will have some different roles that God has assigned to them because of their gender, and they, they complete one another. They don't compete with one another. That's the key. You can be a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, solid Christian. These are open-handed issues, and be on either position. Where the egalitarian goes too far is it denies gender categories. It leads to gender dysphoria, non-binary gender spectrum, transgender bishops and rainbow, you know, robes, um, just sort of trying to get cuts in the line to hell. You go too far on the left, you go too far on the right. Chauvinistic, domineering, overbearing, abusive men who are harsh and bad and brutal sometimes to women and children. Both are evil. In the middle, there is the egalitarian and the complementarian. I hold the complementarian position, largely based on this verse. 
The word therefore, teach, is a general word. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. The hard part with that word for authority, again, I'm just verbal processing, but I think in the original Greek, it's, this is the only place in the New Testament that that word appears. So there's a debate, what does he mean by authority? So let me summarize all this for you and then make it practical. I believe uh, that the Bible teaches singular headship and plural leadership. Singular headship, plural leadership. Headship is male, leadership is male and female. In the Trinity, there is the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is the singular head. The Father, Son, and Spirit are plural leaders. They do everything together. The home is to be patterned after the governance of heaven. Singular headship, plural leadership. Singular senior pastor, male leader, plural leadership, that is um, godly leadership locally and translocally. Paul here is writing to Timothy. He's not, he's not local. That's why he's writing a letter. Plural leadership would include um, local and translocal leadership. And um, that headship would be one person who's the head, they're the leader, meaning they're firstly responsible. And then the plural leadership is to hold them accountable, to help them find God's will, and to help them do God's calling. So the governance of God is singular headship, plural leadership. The governance of home is singular headship, plural leadership. And the governance of church should follow the pattern of the family and God's family, singular headship, plural leadership. So again, summarize all this. God, Trinity, singular headship, father, plural leadership, father, son, and spirit. Home, singular headship, husband and father, plural leadership, mother and father. Church, singular headship, senior pastor, male leader, um, plural leadership. Now the question is, if a woman is preaching or teaching, is that, um, is that headship or is that ministry? And you'd have to say, some people ask, well, can women be in ministry? Well, of course, they are saved, filled with the spirit, have all the spiritual gifts, and they're doing ministry. So that, that, that's not the issue. The issue is, um, is it a position of headship where they're exercising authority? So I'm a complementarian. I have always said, and gotten beaten like a pinata on Cinco de Mayo, that in the home, the man should be the head and that the husband and wife should be plural leaders. And in the church, men should be head and uh, women should be plural leaders. That being said, um, that's why I'm the senior pastor at our church. I don't know if you know this, spoiler alert, I'm a dude. And um, my wife runs the women's ministry and closes services with me and prays and gives testimony and women lead worship and baptisms and are on staff. And I co-authored a book with my daughter and I preached the first half of the sermon. I bring her up to interview her in a conversation to talk about praying to God as Father and relating to God as Father. So we do ministry as a family, we do life as a family, but I am I'm the male leader. And I believe that is my God-given role in the church and in the home. That being said, here's the question, what kind of church are you in? And these are all directives to a church and God's telling a church how to operate. And if you are a man, I'm telling you, you are the spiritual head of your home and you need to lead it by praying and worshiping. And that starts with you choosing the church. And Paul here is writing to a church. And what happened was during the world wars, all the young strong men went off to war that left behind women and children 
older men and weaker men. So then the church became for and led by um, women, older men, weaker men for women and children. Then the men came back from war and they're like, we did war. We don't worship, doesn't feel like war. We had a general, we don't really have a strong male leader. We had a band of brothers and now it's a bunch of beta males and it's for women and children. They've redecorated, they've reset the music. The whole thing feels like it fits for women and children. So then men after the world war statistically never came back to church. It's very practical. So if you are a dude, I would tell you, pick a church that works for your whole family, but there's other dudes and the leader is a dude. And um, it's a church, and I always say this, that women feel more comfortable in a masculine environment if it's not angry and aggressive than a woman does, excuse me, than a man does in a feminine environment. I'll say it again. Women feel more comfortable in a masculine environment if it's not angry and aggressive than a man does in a feminine environment. That's why you don't see healthy men in nail salons. If you walk into Victoria's Secret and there's a dude there, he's either weird or confused or a pervert. But if you walk into a sports bar, there'll be tons of women there watching the game because men don't feel comfortable in a feminine environment, but women feel more comfortable in a masculine environment if the men are like brothers and fathers and husbands, not abusers and users and losers. So I would just tell you men, pick a good church and pick a church that'll teach you how to be a man, teach your wife how to be a woman, that's what Paul's doing, and then teach you how to act out of your God-given roles as man and woman, husband and wife, and then raise your children to be sons and daughters in a world that's lost its freaking mind and was probably triggered by the fact that the Bible actually speaks to binary gender categories of men and women. That's your assignment, dudes. Find a church. This one was a little long. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time, and we'll talk about how to be a good leader. Pastor Mark here saying thank you for giving me the honor of helping you to learn God's Word. In a world filled with bad news, you need some good news. In a world filled with lies, you need some truth. And so, as I like to say, it's all about Jesus. We open the Bible, and we help people learn about Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, uh, if you would help me get the Word of God out, it would mean the world to me. You can go to realfaith.com, mountain of Bible teaching. I mean, we're coming up on three decades of Bible teaching. And or if you just go to 99383 and text the word unfiltered, again, that's 99383 unfiltered. We'll send you a link that'll open up literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of free Bible teaching.